Welcome to Let's Get Political, a podcast dedicated to providing you with all the information you need to know to make informed decisions without the media spin. I'm your host, Benjamin Copeland, and with me is my co-host, Jessica Hargis. In this episode, we explore some of the cases that the U.S. Supreme Court will hear in the new term. Some unique and not so unique cases that may be important and have ramifications for the future. I'm glad you're able to join us. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. It's October, and you know what that means. The court is in session. I'm talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. This episode, we want to talk about some of those cases that they're going to hear and decide and how they're going to uh, affect you know, laws and procedures going forward. So we've we've selected some cases here that are really important, and there are other cases that they're continuing to take that we want to highlight as far as the fact that they're important, but we're not going to necessarily go too far into them. Maybe we'll do that in a uh, upcoming episode and talk about the decisions that came down and how they're going to affect what's going on. Sure. Before we get started, I just want to make a couple of comments. Like what is interesting to court watchers like us is that in the last five years, we've had four new justices on the court. And so sometimes, you know, a court gets into a nice rhythm where you can really weirdly predict kind of how they're going and why they chose certain cases. And so it's always interesting now that they have a new justice on the court to see how they're going to work together. Um, and so that's something that court watchers like to look at. Um, of course, Katanji Brown Jackson, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, isn't going to make a change. Uh, she's replacing a um, more liberal justice in our theory is that she'll be more liberal, but this is going to be one that we get to watch and figure out right. how she rules. Also, something that's interesting is my students always think, oh, you can take any case to the Supreme Court, right? Um, so the Roberts Court, which is in its 15th year, he's only, what, the 17th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Um, yeah, he has not been one to take a significant amount. So if you think they can, any case can go to the Supreme Court, that's not true, um, right? So they're looking at the most contested, the uh, precedent setting cases, the issues that are really um, over the circuits are really confusing and they need to set the record straight. And so right now they only have 36 right. cases and not all of them are set. Uh, argument dates are set, but 36 cases, right. um, which they'll probably only go up to about 80 has been his high, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So. And I think I think the last couple of years uh, they've fallen into the 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. He's not one to like take every single case. And they put a lot of um, I mean, as we saw last term, 193 pages for a decision. Right. So it's not like they're right. They're not just blowing it off, guys. They're they're taking a lot of things into account, writing great details so that the rest of us can understand why they're doing what they're doing. So I just want to point that out. Sure. That they, no, not I everything gets to the Supreme Court. So these are really the most important. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And there's a lot of justices that you when you and I were growing up that had been there for so long <laughs> are, are now gone and we've got lots of new justices on the court and we're still trying to figure out how they're 
thought what their thought processes are in deciding these cases. Um, and, you know, we we think to ourselves, oh, we know exactly what the Trump appointed justices are going to do. But then they surprise us from time to time and they rule with the more progressive wing of the of the court from time to time. So you, it's it's hard. Yeah, all of a sudden you have Gorsuch who believes that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 includes LGBTQ rights, right? <laughs> it's it's hard to get a handle on what it is that where this court's going to shake out. Um, so I'm excited. This is definitely my favorite month of the year. So, But I think we're, I think, and this is just my opinion, I think we are barring somebody dying. <laughs> we are, we're going to have, a status quo court for a while. The oldest nice one being Clarence Thomas, but he's, he's still relatively young for Supreme Court justices. He's only 72. Did I get that right? Um, well, he has been waiting his whole ter- his whole time on the court to have this kind of a split. So I don't think he's going anywhere. Now, if he no. was in Texas, funny enough, he would be um, <laughs> be kicked off the court. He'd be kicked off the court. That's <laughs> right. That's right. In Texas, we don't like old people, but in the no. federal system, seventy two is young. Isn't that great? <laughs> I know he's seventy four. He's 74. oh, see, he wouldn't even so be he's able to stay on. Younger. He's younger than my dad, but he was put on the court by George H. W. Bush and. Um, oh, what I think is funny is, do you ever talk to your class about who the um, who was in charge of the Judiciary Committee who made his life a living hell? Yeah, that Joe was Biden. Joe Biden. And Joe so, Biden. That's right. That's yeah. a bitch, you know, <laughs> is, is, are some of these, are, you know, I read some memes from time to time and it, it shows Clarence Thomas, you know, smiling, getting back at Biden. Oh, my gosh. Some of these decisions. Too. I mean, I don't I don't know that. I don't think that's really what Clarence Thomas is doing, but now that's what I would an, do. I am definitely interesting. I wouldn't hold that grudge to forever. But just so you know, guys, we have no inside information. We no, don't we have absolutely no just, inside. If we were Thomas, this is how we would feel. That, that's exactly. <laughs> oh, something else I thought was interesting about one of these cases that you, um, oh, maybe, that you want to talk about the election case. I just yeah. realized that Chief Justice Roberts. Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett were all on the Bush legal team in 2000 when they were up against Gore. That's right. They were. Look at that. Mm -hmm. Look at the team is back together again on the courts. Back together. Yeah, I guess. I'd be watching whether or not they they vote together. That's something I always like to see. You worked together back then under somebody, some boss. Now you're the boss. You know, um, it just on me too, there are no more Clinton appointees on the court. I know. You know, I wrote my dissertation. And that wasn't that long ago. No, I wrote my dissertation in 2009. I was an expert in all those guys. And you got Roberts, Thomas, Alito. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I pretty much can't tell you much about these guys. (laughs) I need to do some more research. Write a new uh, dissertation for that. Well, let's get into some of these cases. These are fascinating cases. And we would we take almost an hour talking about them before we're about to talk about them on the podcast? We, Jessica, you and I are just Supreme Court case junkies or nerds. nerds. Okay, like nerds it. is probably better. Um, but let's start with two cases, which had been consolidated, meaning they were going to be heard at the same time. But then they were broken up again because of our newest justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, she had been on Harvard's board of overseers. Uh, I, I'm assuming that that is uh, looking at who should be uh, put into Harvard or not. Um, is that right? 
allegedly the board um she claimed during her confirmation hearing that she really was not very active and didn't have direct involvement but she promised to recuse herself if put on the court regardless because this case was already chosen by the court at the time she was being um confirmed so but but what does the board of overseers do uh it was contentious during the confirmation hearing she claimed that they were just a board that were um seldom talked to and then the the justices i'm sorry the senators were the ones who brought up that they were very actively involved and who was um being allowed in i think uh, ultimately what they decided was that they are the ones who just um help decide the policy not the people okay Either way, either way, she was tangentially or in the thick of deciding who should be admitted and who shouldn't. And so that's her reason for having recused herself from that case. And in order to be able to have her hear the other case, which involves the University of North Carolina, uh, they broke them back up. But we're going to talk about them together because essentially the question is the same question. So let's let's talk about this case and talk about what's going on uh, with it. First, what what we have is a a challenge to Harvard and North Carolina's acceptance policies. Now, uh, there was a case decided in two thousand three, uh, Gutter v. Bollinger, and it essentially the court essentially said in that case you can use race as one of the factors in deciding who gets admitted to public schools, universities, and who does not, as long as there are other factors as well being considered. And there can't be a quota system that has been in place. That that decision of a quota system has been in place for a while, but they, they did reiterate that. Um, what ends up happening in this case is that Harvard. Well, just real quick, go ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry. The other interesting thing about the 2003 case, just that I want to point out, is that O'Connell had written the case, and so the original, when you're looking at affirmative action decision, was from 1978. And when they look at 2003, they're like, okay, well, we see that diversity still not been reached. We understand that there's a need for it in universities. However, O'Connell, love O'Connor. O'Connor. Connor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I'm, I'm a love boat or something. Okay. And O'Connor decides, hey, in 25 years, this may not be necessary. So I know that that was also a factor in them taking this case because we just recently had an affirmative action case in 2015 um, and 16 right. with Fisher. And so the two, the 25 years is really looming. So right. sorry, I just wanted to add that. No, that's a, you're absolutely right. And I, I missed that part. Uh, she did say that, you know, in 25 years, this may not be necessary. So um, so essentially what, what's happening is that Harvard and North Carolina are taking, uh, are, are prioritizing certain races uh, at the expense of other races. And the, the race that is of importance in this case is Asian Americans. Uh, I pulled a couple of statistics real fast. Harvard admitted, you had a 25% chance of being admitted to Harvard if you're Asian a 35% chance if you're white, a 75% chance if you were Hispanic, and a 95% chance if you were black. So that comes from uh, the the briefs uh, themselves. And so the question before the court is, is this a fair way of deciding who should get into uh, these universities if the universities can use this race 
uh, policy, assuming that they are also using other factors and assuming they don't have a quota system. Now, what I think is interesting is that Thomas has obviously been against affirmative action since the beginning. Um, he despises the elite institutions so much that he doesn't even choose his clerks by elite institutions or anyone who, I mean, he doesn't say benefited from affirmative action, but he really does think it's not a thing uh, mm-hmm. that needs to be done. And Sotomayor, on the other hand, believes that affirmative action is there to bring the diversity. So we've got those two opposing. Then you've got what the 2007 decision that Robert said the only way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. So we kind of have, this is not a shocker that they took this case. Um, I think, and there's an amicus that's been submitted. Um, I think that's what's interesting is that there are some states that have dropped affirmative action, mm-hmm. and have seen an impact on their universities, a lack of diversity because of it um, coming after it. Yeah. And so when you look at that, does the court care or do they just care about um, the, the questions to whether or not we're done with the diversity and it's up to people of diverse backgrounds to choose and select to go. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating question, and and essentially they're asking to overturn Gutter v. Bollinger. Right, is is essentially what's going on here, and whether or not it's going to happen, um, and it's it's going to be hard. It's hard to predict. Now they did take the case; they did take both cases. So, this is hard to predict, really. Well, I mean, in that sense, you think to yourself, okay, they're they're primed to do it. Absolutely. But then at the same time, we haven't. We haven't shook out exactly what the three Trump appointed justices, um, where they're falling on every single issue. So, you know, I think there is some there there is some uh, wonder as to what might happen with this case. I, I think you're right. I, it's primed. I mean, they 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 took the cases. So and it's a we'll perfect see. case. I will say this. What's interesting is if you look at the history of discrimination in the United States and you say, you know, the government has categories of people who have been historically discriminated by the government. That's how it's determined. It's not Ben and I sitting around going who needs to be protected. Right. Um, Asian Americans have been historically badly discriminated by the United States government. Yeah. And yeah. when you think about that and then you don't include them in a provision for um, diversity in university, it's a great case for the court to look at. Because what they're saying is basically, here's a group that should be given the preference if what you're looking for is diversity, yet you left them off because they on their own will succeed. Then how do you know other groups won't succeed on their own? So I think this is the perfect case that Thomas has been looking for for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he can he can bring a few people over to his side when you pick such a group that is obviously discriminated by the United States government historically and yet not given preferential treatment. But that's just, that's, I will, of all the cases we're going to talk about, I'm going to put it down. Affirmative action is going down in a ball of fire. All right. Well, there you go. We're, <laughs> we're, we're going to, pre- we're predicting which Only way this one. Everything else I'm like on the fence. and have no, I think we should do every single one. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I think, you know, if I were a betting man, I would agree with you. That's, that's likely what's going to happen. Um, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say a hundred percent that's what's going to happen. Well, not just that. I couldn't tell you what their legal reasoning will be. And if right. they'll allow places like Texas, which has one of the more unique affirmative action plans, because they don't identify based on discriminatory standard. They just say top 10% of your class 
um, gets preferential treatment at any public universities, the end. Mm-hmm. And that has provided for great diversity at university without having to identify any groups. And so I think that Thomas, that's the only nod he's ever given, yeah, although yeah. he also hated that in Fisher. But um, so I, I'm not going to tell you how and what the reasoning is, but I definitely think affirmative action like this. You're, you're just thinking gutter gets overturned. Gutter's getting guttered, man. It's awesome. It's getting guttered. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well, let's move on to our second case. And we're going to look at elections. So, of course, the 2020 census happened. And then in 2021, apportionment, that is where each state gets their allotment of the House, the U.S. House seats. And um, then the the it shifts over to the state legislatures in order to uh, redistrict based on the uh, amount of seats that they get, even with states like Alabama and uh, North Carolina that get the same amount of seats, although did North Carolina add one? I don't know. Um, but but they still redistrict those seats, uh, even if you didn't get, gain one or lose one, they still change the districts uh, depending on population growth, depending on uh, all of these different factors. So one thing that uh, is at all, every 10 years, you know, there are a myriad of challenges. And one of the questions is, what can you draw these lines around and what is unconstitutional for you to draw these lines around? And the court has been Uh, pretty clear on a couple of things. Number one, you can draw the lines around party. You are, that is constitutional. You are allowed to to draw them around party. What you are not allowed to draw them around and what is unconstitutional is you can't draw them around race. That is is definitely not something that you can do, uh, especially trying to dilute uh, minority votes in a sense. And of course, most of my students don't understand why. And so I always try, it's going back to the historical discrimination of certain groups. But, um, you know, if you know your history of the United States, certain groups, especially in the South, were limited from their ability to um, exercise the right to vote for many reasons, even after civil rights and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there are a few different provisions that were supposed to affirmatively assist my uh, discriminated groups to vote. Now in 2013, the Supreme Court already kind of cut out the historical discrimination section, mm-hmm. um, which basically just said states were still being thought of in their past discriminate discriminatory actions. And so Roberts especially was very um, against, he's basically saying we need to move forward. We can't continue to punish states for what they did in the 50s and 60s and let's move forward. So they got rid of one provision in 2013. This one is asking about section two. So I think that's a little bit important. Do you want to cover section two before we no, go talk? Ahead. Okay, so the idea behind section two was that um, You didn't have to. So, yes, North Carolina actually gained a couple of seats. So when they it's more so the Alabama case here, which gained a seat when you're redistricting, you don't have to think about how this will affect discriminated groups. But if the outcome affects discriminated groups, then you can sue and say, hey, what you guys did is not good for these different groups. And so in 2013. In other words, let me just say this real quick. In other words, intent doesn't matter. It's the effect. And in 2013, Roberts reiterated that we don't need, and I 
literally forgot section four, right? <laughs> section five, section five of the Voting Rights Act, right? In 2013. Uh, yeah. Um, so. When that one was taken away, he reminded everyone, don't worry, there is section two that if, again, if the effect is bad, good mm-hmm. point there, then you can come back and sue. And so now people are suing. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing about this is where are the justices going to fall? Because the intent, as Alabama and North Carolina are arguing, was never to discriminate. It was just mm-hmm. to redistrict, even if it was for partisan gerrymandering, it's irrelevant. They never intended for any discriminated groups to be harmed. Right. So, and so and then on the flip side of that, yeah. um, especially, so we're going to talk mostly about Merrill v. Milligan, which is the Alabama case. Uh, we, we didn't mention that, but that's, that's the main Alabama case for redistricting. And it's, and they're the ones challenging the Voting Rights Act and Section 2 specifically. And what's being asked is that, Alabama's legislature draw two minority majority districts. In other words, majority black districts. Um, they have one right now. And so and, this, and when you have the census, we have almost 30 percent of the population is black right. and you only have one district that is going to be a majority black district. That's mm-hmm. I'm not very good at math, but that calculates that to like 14 percent. Right. And so they're saying, hey, this is half of what they're representation should be. That's what the argument is against Alabama. And Alabama is saying, hey, we just redistricted. It's not our problem if um, it harms people because that was not our intent. I'm sure they weren't that callous, though. No, <laughs> and I was, it sounded pretty I was callous the way the, I said that. <laughs> this, this case has already been argued before the Supreme Court. And I was listening to uh, especially the uh, state's argument, which always goes first uh, when you're the uh, appellant. Um and, and basically what they were saying is we just did it the way we have always historically done it. You know, we didn't we, we drew the lines in such a way that benefits party, which is OK, but we didn't do it based on race. Um, and, and of course, many of the um, uh, progressive parts of the court were saying, but it doesn't matter what your intent was. It's what what the result becomes now. Uh, from their from their brief, or actually probably from the the Appalese brief, is that the white population went from sixty eight percent to sixty four percent in that ten years, and the black population is somewhere in the offing of thirty yeah. percent. And so, what you were saying earlier, well, then you know they need to have two districts. Now, the argument from the state was. Is, is this going to be the court's, you know, decision essentially that you have to look at whatever the minority population is and then make sure that they get as close to a as many house seats as possible in order to get to that percentage? And they were saying, well, that sets a really dangerous precedence because now you really are using race in order to decide you know, where these districts ought to go. And, you, know, it's interesting. you can see lower, both sides of the argument there. Well, the lower court, which included a few Trump appointees, said that this likely violated the Voting Rights Act and that they should probably try and redo it. So that was the um, lower court's decision. But they stopped short of saying that there should be two majority oh, yeah. no, they weren't. districts. 
not tell them what to do. They just right. said, hey, this is probably a violation mm-hmm. um, and fix it. That's what the precedent was before. So, yeah, it's interesting to us, especially to me, because if in 2013 you're telling us Section 2 is left to protect the minorities and all they have to do is file a lawsuit. And here they are filing a lawsuit showing it didn't matter what they intended, but the effect is problematic. How is the court now, a few years later, going to look at it? Are they going to continue to uphold it and say, you're right, hey, maybe you need a few more or maybe you need to redistrict yeah. looking at race. And again, that is a problem. Um, if you're going to be specifically looking at the percentages and whatnot, then we'll have a problem in a few states. I mean, Alabama and North Carolina are not the only ones, right? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. What's interesting about these cases that are before the court, and like you said, this isn't the only one, there are two that are before the court right now, is where are we as a society today? Are we where O'Connell, God, O'Connor, I'm so sorry, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 25 years, we won't have race problems. And what's interesting is that I don't think that's true, right? I don't think that we are blind. Um, and I'm not certain that if you if you want to be blind to race, you can do what Robert says, which is if you want to stop discriminating on the basis of race, you got to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Right. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. That's why these cases are fascinating to me, because, of course, in Texas, we have just passed the 40 percent mark with the population being Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet when you look at our redistricting plans, they are not where you would have 40% of the elected officials being, you know, Hispanic. Um, but does that account for because we don't have the districts or does that account because they're not voting or, or they're not running like your professor said, right? And so there's just more nuance. So I'm excited to see what the court is going to do for us in the future on these issues. Yeah, for sure. And there's another. I am not predicting this one. So oh, you're not going to predict you this one? If okay. you want to predict this one. I, I am not predicting this one either. I, I, But if you did listen to the court, did you listen to, um, I was loving, of course, you know, we watched the court. Um, Ketanji Brown Jackson did not sit idly by. She jumped right in on the first day and hammered the state state with the original intent of the 14th amendment. And that was very interesting because if you looked at the court last semester, last season, wow, I need a drink. Um, if you look at the court last session, they like to do the originalism and or original intent. And for some people, they're like, oh, what do the founding fathers think? No, 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 no. Originalism is the people who passed the law in question or the amendment in question. What was the intent of the law or the intent? So it doesn't even have to go back to Hamilton or um, or anyone back then. It can go back to the 14th Amendment in 1860s. Why did they have to pass the 14th Amendment? And her whole historical evaluation of the 14th Amendment said that they were consciously looking at equalizing the races. And the only way to do that was to pass the 14th Amendment and then actively do affirmative action to bring up previously um, enslaved people to um, integrate into society. Right. And if you're going to go in originalism, does she win? And well... That is true. But then on the flip side, you can still make an originalist argument by saying at, that this, while this is a remedying type of policy, at some point, you no longer need the remedy. Right. And that becomes the question. Well, 25 years. are we at that point? I mean, <laughs> a, a, according to O'Connor, it could have been 25 years. But O'Connell was, thinks it should go for another 30. I don't know who that is. O'Connell is not on the court. Yeah. <laughs> um, Some random lawyers. Yeah. Over. And, and I think that was an arbitrary number she probably put in. Yeah. There. I don't know that she 
I, you know, far be it for me to speak for Ju Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who is no longer on the court, my, but yeah, she is still with us. She is still my with eight us. ball doesn't tell me what the future. Yeah, is. what she what she was thinking when she came up with a twenty five year, <laughs> you know, uh, number. I, I think she was just putting it in as a placeholder, saying, "Hey, you know, we need to reexamine these things at regular intervals." And I guess for her, twenty five years was. Uh, you know, I guess that's what she decided. But right. um, on the on the, another election case, though, Moore v. Harper out of North Carolina, um, we're not going to talk about this one in depth like Merrill, but essentially this is another election gerrymandering case stemming from the pandemic in which the executive branch and the judicial branch were changing election law. And essentially what's going on here is that they're being challenged on whether or not those branches can change election law without the legislature's approval. And of course, the Constitution says that it's the legislature that decides, the state legislatures that decide election law. So it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting case, a case that will uh, merit looking at more uh, down the line. Uh, anything you want to say on that case? Uh, yeah, I mean, the independent state legislature doctrine, it's mm. been uh, thrown out here and there, but never accepted by the Supreme Court. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty interested to see how they think about that. Yeah. Um, some people in the legal field think that um, this is a throw out to election, the electors, not necessarily how we hold elections. So I'd like to see their decision. Like I said, some of it, Ben and I, we would like to read the decisions to really understand. <laughs> that's, that's a little that's a novel the concept. I know. I, my people are like, oh, but I heard on the news, Twitter told me my, my TikTok said this. Um, but I'm very fascinated to see how they, they suss out all the, all the nuances of how, because, you know, when you make a doctrine, how will it then be interpreted later on is important. And so I'm very excited about these cases. Oh, without a doubt. And, and again, no predictions from here. I told no you more predictions only one I'm willing to do. And started off. <laughs> this is downhill from here on. Out. All right. Well, let's move on to our next case. 303 Creative versus Ellenis. Did I say that right? That's what I think. Yeah. That's what yeah. Here we're talking about a religious freedom case and or to a minor degree, maybe a free speech case. So in this case, Colorado has a law on the books that says that businesses may not discriminate if they're if they're open to the public, they may not discriminate based on sexual orientation. Essentially, what happens is uh, this 303 creative business, which correct me if I'm wrong, they do photography or or was it wedding planning? So weirdly enough. Lori Smith, the owner, um, is thinking about making web designs for web design. weddings, but right. she has not yet made one, nor has she been asked to make one for a same-sex couple. Okay. So, so she's projecting what would happen to her rights if she did. The question becomes, can a business in Colorado and presumably in the United States, because uh, it will it will be policy in the United States, depending on what they decide here, um, can they preemptively say we don't take same sex couple and is that okay is is essentially is that constitutional uh, under the free exercise clause of the first amendment so that's that's what our 
that's what our question is here. Now, an interesting thing that she said in her brief was that she would be happy to help same-sex couples find another person to do their web design needs for their wedding, but that she herself could not do them because she had a sincerely held religious belief. That's the that's the magic words for uh, a First Amendment uh, religious exercise uh, freedom freedom. Oh wow, maybe maybe I'm having some trouble here too. <laughs> Free exercise clause case. If you have a sincerely held religious belief, that in many ways the court has said in the past uh, will trump you know uh, some some federal law. So thoughts on this one? I talked way um, too much on that one. Yeah, this one's, I mean, as all, that's why we chose this. Very interesting. I think that uh, when you get into the nuances of it, the the cake baker, um, so when you say public use, right, uh, if I have, I was like to my little bagel shop, right, if I have a bagel shop and people come in there and I don't like who you are, can I deny you use? Well, that's public use. You're walking in and you're doing stuff. The whole thing about the, um, the cake maker for weddings is he claimed to be an artist. So when you're an artist... I guess it takes you to a different level. And so there they still said, hey, there are issues. And that's what she's saying here. As a web designer, I am an artist. And as an artist, my art is how I express myself and my free speech. So um, I'm not sure why they decided to take this case after, I mean, just a few years ago, they decided the cake baker one. So I am um, confounded by why they would take something so close. And again, this is a Colorado case. We do not have a national right. anti-discrimination law in effect. Um, this is specifically a Colorado anti-discrimination law, unless there are other states that are looking to put this one in. I am slightly just like, wow, why would they yeah. bother wasting their time of the few that they take? So I'm- Well, we've I got new justices. I mean, isn't that pretty much the the? No, that's shocking. Reasoning? So you think that they're going to now decide that freedom of speech is more important than the other stuff, right? You mean uh, free exercise or free speech? I guess it could go either. I way. mean, the, the legal question, the constitutional way they wrote it is uh, speech, which I, of course, explain to my students, it can include your exercise, especially right. artists, right? Yeah. So what do you think? You think right. they're going to overturn? They're going to be, yeah, call it. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to make a prediction on this one. I guess I would, I would, I would maybe do a 60, 40 since they did take a case before on it and they're, they're hitting a case again, pretty closely. It'll, related. Be, it'll be interesting um, on the flip side. And, you know, maybe this is, is uh, going a little far afield, but, you know, can we, can we bring in the free market here for, these types of cases, you know, these types of situations. I mean, can we allow the free market to come in and either allow these places to thrive or to not thrive if the community is saying, hey, we're not going to go patronize your business because you don't have the same cultural values that we do and allow the free market to, you know, to, to do what it does best and essentially, you know, um, picking winners and losers, essentially. You know, I, I'm always hesitant to allow, as to get into, you know, cases, but more importantly, because, you know, cases always pick winners and losers, but but really into legislation where we're picking winners and losers and, and having the, the government come in to do that. Um, 
when the free market, you know, as, as an alternative, maybe the free market can do this. I don't know. I'm not necessarily saying that that's, that's my, my opinion on it, but, but it is an alternative to coming up with just state intervention. Well, um, yeah, I agree. I think it's, I mean, the reason they took it is obviously because the court has changed and, um, Mm. If that's the case, then your 60-40 is being conservative. You think so? <laughs> Otherwise, what, they're just going to re- reiterate that states have the right to uh, make sure that people aren't discriminated against? Possibly, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, I wish I had an inside, I wish I had an insider knowledge of what goes on in there, but a you short know, being put on the court is. myself. <laughs> uh, which is never going to happen. Um, although <laughs> I do say to my students, look, if you ever find yourself president of the United States, think about your, your old government teacher who is a lawyer. Doesn't <laughs> even, that's not even a requirement, man. No, it's you not a requirement, but Hey, at least uh, I might pass, you know, the, the state, I mean, sorry, not the state, the Senate's uh, confirmation process. Yeah. You don't, you don't offend most people. So that's right. pretty good. All right. Moving on. Uh, let's talk about, U.S. versus Texas. What? Yeah, the <laughs> Texas. You know, if you Google U.S. versus Texas, so many. It's cases. Only like a million cases, right? No, so it's not that Texas <laughs> is uh, immune from getting to the the top court. We love it. We love going after this, the federal government. So, so what's this, their problem today? The, yeah, what's our problem today? <laughs> this, this U.S. v. Texas is. I actually joined by Louisiana, but of course uh, we can't put Louisiana in the in the title. No, um, but. <laughs> But essentially, Texas and Louisiana are challenging the Biden administration's immigration policy. And in 2001, um, Mayorkas, who is the Secretary uh, of Homeland Security, Homeland Security. Thank you. I kept wanting to say Attorney General. I knew that was absolutely wrong. Call McConnell. Yeah, you know that's really bad when that happens in class, and you're sitting there (laughs) going, "I know this. I know this." These Students think I'm an idiot, you know, but hey, I call it a brain fart and tell them that's why they're allowed to have computers and they just need to Google it because I'm not, if you just played off like, hey, if you don't know, then I'm not telling you kind of thing. <laughs> don't think I haven't done that once or twice. Right. Uh, you know, and it's not that I don't know it. It's just, hey, like, I'm getting old. I, I haven't deleted other head. information for the new names yeah. yet. So in this case, um, Mayorkas sent out a memo to uh, immigration's uh, enforcement agency saying essentially, hey, we want you to prioritize uh, certain illegal aliens for deport- deportation. This included things such as uh, terrorist, um, serious felony crimes, uh, illegal aliens who had committed serious felony crimes, um, and to to use the available resources to apprehend and deport um, these certain uh, categories of people. Texas, on the other hand, is arguing, well, you know, you are essentially creating for us an undue burden, especially financially, because we're having to hold a lot of illegal aliens uh, in, uh, you know, jails, detention centers, whatnot, and they are not being processed for deportation. And we want you guys to, the feds, which of course they have the enumerated power to uh, regulate immigration and naturalization procedures. We want you to uh, also process these things. Now, on the one hand, um, 
the federal government says there's 11 million illegal aliens in America right now. This is the Biden administration's number. And we just don't have the resources to pick up 11 million people and deport them. What else are they doing? I I think Texas's argument on the flip side is, well, uh, how about these ones that we've caught? Can can we can we maybe deport these because it doesn't take a whole lot of, uh, you know, it's not a heavy lift to find these folks. We got them right here. Um, What are your thoughts on this case? So when I saw this case, number one, of course, Texas always pops out. So I like to look at it. Immigration law is always very interesting to me because when I originally read the case, I was like, well, they're prioritizing um, the dangerous. Right. They 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 and most people agree with that. Right. And it's weird to me because like Obama did that. Trump did that. Texas all of a sudden has a problem with it. So, um, you know, I I just. Are they just wanting is what do you think? Why are they not going after Obama and Trump? But they're coming after Biden for this is because 11 million is what we had when Obama was president. So I don't don't know that they're I don't know that they're against, you know, prioritizing terrorists and people with, you know, serious felonies. I think the problem stems from the fact that we have an unprecedented amount of people coming across the border right now. And you know, as such, Texas and Border Patrol in Texas are uh, catching a higher percentage of people, not higher percentage, a higher number of people, even if it's the same percentage as previous years. But if you're if you're catching the same percentage, you're you're getting more people because there's so many people coming across the border. And so they're saying, hey, we've got all these people here and we got to do something with them. We can't we can't continue to hold them. It's costing us way too much money to hold them. Why can't you also prioritize getting the people caught deported? Deported. That that's the only thing that I can think of as to why Texas is is challenging this. Well, and the district court agreed with Texas, right? The district court mm-hmm. said it was arbitrary, capricious, contrary to law, failing to observe procedures, etc. And so barred the guidance. And so that's why we're at the Supreme Court. I guess um, what what's the outcome here? So the outcome is, hey, Biden, how about you deport some people that the law says you have to deport? So that's not really a downside to losing. What's the opposition that Texas loses and Biden gets to continue to decide who they deport? Is that like, you know, right? The outcome is going to be either deport everybody now, which why aren't you doing anyway? Um, or no, let the government decide who they deport, right? That's the, yeah. Those are the outcomes we're looking at. Well, I mean, let's look at the elephant in the room. I mean, this is all very political, right? I mean, immigration what? has become, yeah, right. <laughs> hey, let's get political. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, I think, I think some of this stems from Texas's frustration, you know, the, the, the state government's frustration over the Biden administration not being tough on immigration. Uh, I think I think that's what we're really talking about. And right. so this is this is a way for Texas to try to try to get the move, you know, move the needle somehow, I, I'm guessing. I agree. I um, you know, I have uh, I think we should do a whole thing on immigration because I think immigration is not really well understood. 
um, 11 million. Really? I'm just still stuck on that number because we had 11 million, you know, 12 years ago. So you're saying that the number doesn't change or you're just deporting the amount so that we're always staying at the, you know what I'm saying? Like, come on, Biden, give me a better number here. Yeah. Um, I, I, maybe nobody did the work and they just used the, the free. You have oh, hey, here's an 11 million number. You're guesstimating because of course, yeah. how are you going to find out? But yeah, I'm, um, I would love to do a whole thing on immigration. I would love to delve a little bit deeper into this problem that we have. And um, again, I mean, the district court ruled for Texas. The um, Court of Appeals agreed with the district court. And yet here we're going to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I understand why the court took the case. I'm just still confounded by why why we're still arguing about this. If they're undocumented, they need to be. And they've been caught. Just get rid mm-hmm. of it. Do your job. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And we'll see what they, what they actually, what the court actually says. And if it, you know, we'll, we'll reexamine it to see if, if they've really come out with something so profound that it's going to change the way immigration is done. You know, the federalism issue between states and the feds when it comes to immigration. So well, and on a, administrative law, it, it basically decides whether or not, because I'm looking at the questions, right? The Constitution, when you go to the Constitution, it, they give you the scope of what you're asking the court to rule on. Mm-hmm. And the scope is interesting here because they're saying whether the guidelines that were provided by the federal government violate the Administrative Procedure Act. And the Administrative Procedure Act basically allows the executive branch of government to administer the law, which is kind of what the Constitution says they're supposed to do, right? Um, faithfully execute the law. That's the job of the executive. Mm-hmm. And so if they find in uh, line with Texas, are they then saying that admin law is not nearly as broad as we've seen it in the past? Um, that will also kind of change the job of the executive because if the law is deport undocumented people and they're not allowed to prioritize which ones to go after first, that kind of does hold them to a different standard than we've had in the past. Yeah. So essentially what can the executive branch agencies do do, and what do they really need the Congress to tell them they can do? Yeah. It's, it's definitely interesting to say the least. Let's talk about (laughs) cases that we're not necessarily going to get too far into, but are very, very exciting. So what's your first one? I'm going to do the boring administrative ones first. We'll end with the excitement. Administrative Um, law hurts my head. Oh, that's too bad. Admin (laughs) law is like the most exciting law out there. All right. So there are two cases that I'm looking at, um, mainly because the EPA was under attack last session, and it seems like they're going after them again. West Virginia versus EPA was a big Big case. Yeah. yeah. And and that's again. So, so for those who aren't aware, administrative law are um, the administration or the bureaucracy um, is what the executive oversees at the federal government. And they're the ones that are really implementing the laws or the policies that are passed by Congress. And so Congress creates an environmental protection agency. The agency then is housed under the executive and is staffed by the executive. And then they're there to do what the legislature has told them to do, which is protect the environment. And we've had some interesting interpretations of what that is. So last time it was uh, one area of the EPA and Sackett, the Environmental Protection Agency is now looking at the Clean Water Act. So as a very um, Clean Water Act for dummies overview, uh, basically the Clean Water Act says that you cannot dump things into the water that will then pollute the water and harm people. But there's a 
term that's used in there about waterways. And so this is what's up for questions. Um, the question before the court in this case is whether or not uh, there's a proper test for determining whether wetlands are waterways or waters of the United States. So can you dump polluted or bad material into wetlands um, is the question. And so for somebody who's not familiar with what the difference is between waterways, wetlands, lakes, et cetera, um, I'm, I'm interested to see how the Supreme Court wants to define waters of mm -hmm. the United States. Yeah. If the wetlands are owned by the United States, then you can't dump, yeah. right? So we have a POTUS, president of the <laughs> United States. We have a V-POTUS, vice president of the United States. We also have a WOTUS, <laughs> waters of the United States. Did you know that? I mean, only because these are the cases that I'm interested <laughs> in, right? Uh, I love it when the Supreme Court defines terms for me, so I don't have to go look at <laughs> Don't you love it? And again, this is more of an admin law. I will tell you that a lot of people are like, oh, the Supreme Court's so contentious. About 80% of what they look at is admin law. And usually they're either unanimous or at a seven, um, I don't do good math, seven, two split. It's not as contentious in the administrative law arena, mm -hmm. but this was Breyer's wheelhouse. Breyer yeah. loved it. Now you're going to have Roberts, who's going to be the um, admin expert because mm -hmm. he too was in um, interested in this area. So it's just a little shift now that Breyer's off the court. Who's going to yeah. take over writing these cases? How are they going to look at administrative law? And, and Roberts sided with the uh, other conservative justices in the West Virginia EPA case, because uh, it was a 6-3 case. Right. So. And and again, usually administrative law cases are really not that contentious. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if we're just getting political on the court in general. That'll be another thing that I'll look at, because like I said, as somebody who looks at administrative law, when you're looking at the court, is not usually contentious. You have an admin case, they explain it to the administration what to do, and then they move on. Right. So my other admin law case that I'm just going to highlight is one that I have to admit, I did not know we literally had a law for this, but it's called Halland v. Bracken. And it has to do with the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. And um, I am very ignorant on this law. This is why I'm fascinated by this. But apparently we have a history in the United States of taking children of Native Americans and um, placing them either in boarding houses to assimilate them into American culture and or just taking them out of dangerous households and putting them into um, households that are not dangerous, right? And so this 1978 law reflected that if you are removing a Native American child from the family, um, they, you need to establish a preference that the Native American children are removed from the families and placed with extended family members or Native foster homes. So for those who don't understand, Native Americans are still sovereign um, people. And so this was saying, hey, let's for I mean, an analogy, which is a terrible analogy, is if you're uh, America is going to go into Mexico and take a, a child who's in a household that's dangerous in Mexico and give them to another Mexican family that won't be as dangerous. And the question is whether or not you can give the child to an American family instead. Right. Because right. here comes a white family who has been fostering a Native American child for a very long time and they want to adopt and the law doesn't allow them to. So mm -hmm. the question um, as I continue to get into the weeds is, does the American Child Welfare Act's restriction on placement of Native American children violate anti-commandeering principles of the 10th Amendment um, and the anti-commandeering clause? So are they required to follow the law or is it just the judicial interpretation? Interesting. And, and, and the underlying thing here, as you correctly pointed out, is the, the, the sovereignty issue. 
Yeah. Like, how are we going to look at Native American lands? And if it's overturned, if it's found to be discriminatory against white families, do we also remove some of the sovereignty of Native Americans? Right. So just two cases that I, of course, as a dork in administrative law, I'm super interested in. Yeah. Fascinating cases for sure. Also, uh, there is Gonzalez v. Google. Uh, Google just took on uh, not too long ago. Did you want to talk about this one? Uh, We definitely interesting case, but we're not going to get too far into the weeds of it. Yeah. So this is actually um, and the federal law has this thing called immunity. And so some people, um, if they work for different groups, if something happens and you want to sue because of an outcome you don't like, they're immune to the direct lawsuit. So you can possibly sue uh, the agency and or the company, but not the individual people, et cetera. And so weirdly enough, section 20 uh, or 230 yeah, um, of this legislative act <laughs> protects internet search engines or those algorithms that are allegedly kind of, um, what are they called? Recommending. Certain, recommending. There you go. Yeah. Recommending certain pages or in this case, certain YouTube videos to people. Yeah. Yeah. And what it stems from somebody who was um, killed in a Paris attack right. and the person who committed the attack had been radicalized on the Internet because right. of allegedly watching these videos that the algorithm kept sending him. Right. And so the question is to whether or not liability for the content and I guess what the algorithm is doing, um, if they can go after the search engines. Right. I see kind of what's going on here. You've got uh, obviously a, a, a family who is uh, uh devastated they lose their 23 year old uh uh child uh, well not a child anymore but you know family member uh and so you're going after deep pockets <laughs> who has deeper pockets than google right telecommunications act and whether or not it covers this type of recommending system which apparently recommended to uh this terrorist I mean, that's essentially what they became. This person who then became a terrorist, these certain recruitment videos from ISIS. I, you know, I can't, um, I I don't know how the court's going to deal with this one. No, this is interesting because, you know, if you're watching, if you watch politics, you know that liberals absolutely want um, big search engines to be responsible. And that hasn't always been the case because big business should be, um, you know, free market, blah, blah. Um, but after the election, I think in the election cycle, we also had some uh, conservatives who also said that maybe these groups should have some liability, right? So I don't even know politically what it would be. I don't know what that split would be. Fascinating case. I can see why they took it. No, oh, absolutely. Fascinating. And and we'll certainly be following it to see how this changes the way that technology companies order their algorithms. Uh, I mean, you have to have algorithms. You can't you know, when I when I search something, it's got to try to sift through the is it billions of pages? I have no idea, you know, in order to get to the ones that that I'm really care about looking at. Yeah. And I'm really confused sometimes when I up next in your playlist. I'm like, really? Why? I have no clue. <laughs> well, the well my kid been doesn't searching- understand you, Jessica. No, because my child keeps looking at Minecraft stuff. Oh, I see. Look, there are more cases here that I could go through. I think it, people are fascinated by the Andy Warhol copyright issue. Oh, I am yeah, not a copyright person. 
Dude, I don't understand copyright laws at all, but. Well, I, I looked think, up that one just like really quickly because, yeah. you know, it was fascinating and I'm certainly no copyright lawyer by any means, but apparently what happened was that a, the person who was suing took pictures of Prince and then Andy Warhol came in and used some of these pictures, but changed them. Uh, Which is what them. he does, right? That's it, his whole Yeah, thing. that's what he does. He right. colored them, things like that. that. That's what Andy Warhol got got famous for doing uh, right before he died. He did this. But then when Prince died in 2016, somebody used that picture that Andy Warhol had uh, created, uh, you know, in a tribute or whatnot to Prince. And then the the original person um, sued saying, wait a minute, that's my photograph and y'all are making money off of it. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's mine. Yeah. So, I mean, there's something for everybody. If you are not a court watcher, I can tell you that they've chosen some very interesting cases over very different genres. I think you'll be very satisfied to learn what your rights are. Um, I think that they're shifting, uh, in a very interesting way. There's, it's not a dull moment. I can tell you that. And, um, yeah, it's another new session with a new court makeup. And I encourage anybody who cares at all about democracy to listen in on the court and see what's going on. Absolutely. It, it, it affects us more than we realize. Yep. For sure. And uh, I know that we'll be back to explain these after decisions are made and that should be in late June. They leave the best for last, which is always, always so fun. Yeah. <laughs> Great overview of some of these cases that are coming up and are going to be really in- interesting to see what the outcomes are. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time, rate and review the podcast. That always helps us out. Next week, join us for a discussion on the midterm elections. We're going to look at the governor's races in Texas specifically and across the nation. And we're going to look at key Senate races, especially in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and also key races in the U.S. House. Thanks again for listening. And as always, let's get political.